Okay, it's time now for the uh, Right Hook Health Checkup. We're focusing on how we treat and take care of our own personal health. Uh, any questions, by the way, text them into us, 53106 for 30 cent. And of course, the doc is in. Dr. Kira Kelly, how's it going? Hi, Shane, how are Good you? Good to see you. Uh, listen, loads and loads of questions to get through. So um, let's start with an interesting one here. Uh, Kira. I'm a 19-year-old male. I struggle to fully empty my bladder before I go to bed. I make a conscious effort to avoid drinking fluids, but still have to get up at least twice and immediately feel a full bladder when I wake in the morning. Is this anything serious? No, it's probably not anything serious, It's pro- but it's probably habitual. This guy, I would imagine, the reason he's texting us, my guess is it's been going on for a long time, possibly years, possibly always. Lots of people do have um, a residual volume in their bladder after they go to the loo. And for people like that, I would often suggest this, very simply, when you go to the loo and you finish, like count to 20 and then try and go again before you leave the bathroom because sometimes that'll get out a little bit more of whatever residual volume you have left. If there is a big residual volume, um, that does create problems for people and lots of people struggle with that. But the other thing that, bear in mind for all of us, everybody, we do form urine overnight, you know, through our kidneys. So most yeah. people wake up with a reasonably full bladder, I would suggest, in the morning. It does it tend to be, though, as you get older, that happens more? Like, you, not, you know, as you get, people say, you know, as you get older, you always have to get up. And... Not necessarily. That's often for a different reason. That's often to do with prostate issues in, in men and um, detrusitol, sort of detrusor, rather, issues in women. But that's, parking that for one sec. Um, this guy, I think he should try and double void. I think he should he should try and empty his bladder twice before he goes to bed. And if he's still having a problem, there are tablets he can try. Now, they're prescription medications. Um, Desmopressin, he goes to his GP, he discusses it. And it may be that if he went on these tablets at night for a period of about three months, he could, in fact, retrain his bladder to go the eight or the nine or however so many. So you think that idea of him getting up twice, that's his bladder being trained to... to... I think there is, an, uh, there is a possibility of training his bladder here. You yeah. have to do something a little bit differently so he doesn't have to get up at night to wee because it is a nuisance at 19 getting up twice at night, breaking his sleep and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And he should be able to go all night. And I think probably relatively easily we could probably get him there. So there are tablets that can help with this, but I would also suggest double voiding and doing what he is doing, which is not drinking excess fluids in the evening. But if that's not enough, then I would say trip to your own GP, chat about this and a prescription might help. Okay, good stuff. Um, Another question about uh, sleep and somebody uh, whose sleep is impacted upon. Uh, I wake most nights with dreadful pain in my upper leg or right leg muscles. It alternates at times, rarely in both legs simultaneously. In the mornings, my legs can be stiff, painful, takes an effort to get up. It's not cramp. I've had back pain for 12 months plus right, uh, right side rear on uh, bupropen, 150 grams a day for depression at 58. Troubling. What's wrong with me? There's a lot in that, as you might imagine. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that it isn't cramp because night cramps are in your legs are very common. And lots of people struggle with them and they would be quite, as this gentleman is describing, you know, your muscle belly and your thigh or your, your calf or whatever. And they come on and they're, they're what we would sometimes call exquisitely painful. They would wake you up. It's like a stabbing, cramping pain. I don't know if you've ever had a cramp chain in your leg or in your foot. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's, no, it's incredible. I've had it on, on a football pitch oh and it, you feel like you've been shot in the oh, leg. Oh, it's, it's brutal, yeah. isn't it? And so so people do get that. And and what a lot of people take for that is a very simple drug, which is quinine. Um, some people even don't take the drug. They just drink some tonic water going to bed. I like um, the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> Add a little bit of gin. We, we never mentioned gin. We just said tonic. Um, yeah, okay, sorry. But in any case, so he, he could have cramps and I think that he might be a candidate for quitting. He is talking about low back pain and I think that there is definitely an association between low back pain and leg pain because 
for some of us, if we have a, a nerve root pinched in our lower back, often it's a sciatic nerve root, you do get um, pain going down your legs as well from your low back pain. So it could be to do with that. Does, it, does he need to go to a physio, do you think? He probably does need to go to a physio. But the other thing is, is, is and, and very often, and he hasn't mentioned this, but a lot of people who describe the pains he's talking about are on statins. They're on anti-cholesterol medication. And it may be, even though he hasn't mentioned it, that that's playing a role here because that sounds quite like the side effects of statins and it might be worth him going and having a chat with somebody about this. But what I would say is try some quinine, even some tonic water. See how you get on with that. If your back pain is a real problem, although the back pain doesn't usually, and I'm not saying usually because it can do, doesn't usually radiate down the front of your leg, tends to be more down the back or the side of your leg. Yeah, no, he says right rear side. Okay, well, oh, sorry, that, no, sorry, that's the back. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The yeah. leg is in these upper left or upper. Or I right kind of got the impression muscles. it was the front of his leg. Yeah. Maybe I read it wrong, but yeah. but my feeling anyway would be that that it may be to do with his back. It could be to do with just pure night cramps in his legs, or it could be to do with statins. Um, the the fact he's on bupropion or replacement for, for right? depression is that is that would, I don't think that, that, there's that, no side effects. There. No, and in fact, truthfully. There's quite a, often antidepressants have some benefit to people who suffer with musculoskeletal pain. Um, and we sometimes use kind of old fashioned antidepressants to treat pain of this ilk. Um, so I'm not going to presume it's anything to do with that. I would say we, we would try some quinine, we would look at his back and we would take it from there. Okay. Uh, Chris has texted in to say he has high levels of potassium in his bloods. What causes this and how can I bring them back to normal? Okay. Um couple of things. One is we often see high potassium in bloods when we're doing a blood test on somebody and it can very often be spurious. And what that means is, is if you take a blood test in your GP surgery in the morning at eight o'clock and then it goes to the lab in the hospital at one o'clock and then it's put through the machine and tested at half past three, that's a blood that's been sitting there for could be eight hours. And the changes that occur to the blood over that period of time in the little test tube sometimes give us a false reading of high potassium. So sometimes the only reason people have high potassiums is because their blood's been sitting around for a while. Your GP may know if that's the case in mm-hmm. your case, but that's often a case. And so we see lots of high potassiums that mean nothing. We do see real high potassiums as well. And they're often in people who've either uh, taken a multivitamin that contains potassium, people who eat lots of bananas. Lots of people come in and say, oh, I love the bananas. I take them for the potassium, but they don't even realise that they're pushing their potassium up dangerously <laughs> okay. high. Yeah. Um, that can be one. And sometimes people are on a combination of medications that can raise your potassium. So um, there are certain um, blood pressure medications, for example, that can raise your potassium level and certain combinations of drugs that are prone to raising it. So he may be on medications, we don't know. And is it is it a bad thing if your potassium level is If your potassium high. level is very high, yes, it is a bad thing because it causes problems for the muscles of your heart. That's the main reason. Okay. Um, but very often, genuinely, this is a spurious thing. I would suggest if you're taking a multivitamin, listener, stop. If you're eating lots of bananas, listener, stop and get your potassium levels repeated and see if they're actually high. And mention to the GP about this idea, are my blood sitting around for a few hours? Yeah, and, and, and your GP probably knows this stuff anyway, yeah. but um, that's what I would say. But but a genuinely very high potassium is a serious thing, but truthfully it's quite rare. Okay. Uh, you're listening to The Right Hook Health Checkup with uh, Dr. Kira Kelly in the the hot seat. Keep your text coming through 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. Um, here is a uh, interesting question from Stephen in Wicklow. He says, my 17-year-old son told me yesterday he's experiencing loss of sight in both eyes for a few seconds, several times a week. Doesn't feel sick at the time, nor is he going from seated to standing. Says his head feels heavy at the time. 
Yeah, I saw that one coming in and this listener I really hope is listening because they need to go to a doctor because we don't know and we won't know on the Right Hook Health Check here and now what's what's causing this. It could be something and nothing because how one person describes their symptoms isn't always how how we perceive them. So so this guy could actually just be feeling a bit faint and having that sense of sand in front of his eyes that people get when they're a bit faint, you know, because he could be a growing lad and he could be a bit, you know, shooting up, having a growth spurt or something. It may not be. But if he's genuinely experiencing loss of sight, we need to do lots and lots of tests, including MRIs of his brain and all sorts of things. So, so you know, this mightn't be any big deal. It might be that he's a, he's a bit faint or something and we don't know exactly what's going on. But this guy needs to go to a doctor. He needs to go to a doctor yeah. now, now, today, yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, important to stress that, you know, what you, you can obviously give advice over yeah. the airways, but there is no substitute for actually Absolutely. attending and, a doctor. And to be honest, I don't think a week goes by that we don't sort of stress that and say, look, we're here, we're giving you our best guess, we're giving you our best advice with the information that we have. But loss of sight, I mean, your eyes, your vision, it's a vital sense. So you always protect things like that. And I remember once many years ago seeing a patient who came in to me and uh, said, oh, you know, I lost the sight in my eye there a couple of days ago. You know, what can you do for me? And I was really quite taken aback. And truthfully, there was nothing we could do for for this gentleman. But... um, what I was suppose I was mostly taken aback was the fact that he hadn't come to see me for three or four days. And, you know... This is an important symptom. This is a red flag symptom. This guy needs to go and see a doctor now. So if you are listening, please, I hope you're listening. Loss of sight, go to a doctor. ASAP. Okay, uh, another listener has uh, texted in to say, uh, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, have plantar fasciitis? Fasciitis. Fasciitis, thank you. Won't go away. Any recommendations? First off, what is plantar fasciitis? It's funny, we get a lot of calls about plantar fasciitis because it's really common, Shane, and myself and George talk about it reasonably frequently. There's a few things we get lots of calls about, calls about and George goes, <laughs> George goes mad because he gets bored. But here's the thing. Um, plantar fasciitis is when you get a tightness and a pain in the sole of your foot. So um, underneath the skin and the muscle and sole of your foot, there is a layer of kind of fibrous, filmy sort of stuff. The sort of stuff that you pull off if you were cooking chicken breasts. You pull that filmy stuff off them. That's your, your fascia and their plantar fascia is quite a thick, strong one. And sometimes it gets tight and it gets sore and people get, you know, a lot of pain in their foot yeah, I've from had it. Myself. I've yeah, had it's really the sore. Time, yeah. And you would do And it can be <laughs> can be very uh, you know, painful. Foot pain is is a curse. And yeah. you know what? You turn forty and uh, tell me about Ah, oh, we won't go there, but you know you hear what I'm saying. Yeah. Um what can you do? Well, first of all, you can take anti-inflammatories. Second of all, there are things you can do. And one of the simple things that I, because I, I love simple things is, and I always say this, when you get out of bed in the morning, have a tennis ball by the bed, put your foot on top of the tennis ball, push down and rub your foot backwards and forwards to stretch out the plantar fascia. You can do that. There's actually gadgets you can buy to put your foot on top of that will go and kind of vibrate your foot to do the same thing. But a tennis ball does it pretty well. Physiotherapy is very important for people with plantar fasciitis that isn't going away. And if you are experiencing this, I would go to a physio for sure. I would also take medication and I would also be doing regular, regular uh, plantar fascia stretching because it is, it's a curse. I mean, you know, it affects your ability to walk and it's, yeah. it's very painful and it's very difficult. And it's also very, very, very common. So, you know, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories you can buy provided your tummy isn't sort of vulnerable to them. Um, physio, and get yourself a tennis ball and push down with your foot onto it and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards you kind of roll the foot over the... Um, over the tennis ball to loosen out what becomes a very tight kind of fibrous sheath 
in the floor of your mm, floor okay. of your foot. Good advice there. Uh, another listener says, uh, George, uh, you stopped the doc giving advice for treating an ingrown <laughs> toenail recently. Can you ask her for the same again? Well, George isn't here, so we can definitely ask that. <laughs> yeah, I think probably most of our regular listeners know George stops me from giving advice all the time. Um yeah, England Which kind of runs slightly contrary to the whole idea. But anyway, <laughs> that's it. it's his show. It's his prerogative. It is his show. And in fairness, he he, he certainly brings something to a health check. <laughs> yeah. Something unique, I would suggest. Um, yeah, ingrown toenails very common as well. And what I was suggesting to anybody is sometimes they, when they become infected, you just need a plain old antibiotic. You're going to have to go to a doctor to get one because you're going to need a prescription. But for those of you who it isn't as bad, what can you do? First of all, you can cut your toenail in such a way that you're not cutting the sides down. Um, if you cut the sides down, th- th- it's easier for the skin to kind of heap up on top of the nail. So what you want to do is you want to keep the sides of your toenail long enough that they outgrow what we call the proud flesh, which is where the, the cuticle is coming over the nail. I hope I'm describing that well enough. Yeah. But so you keep your toenails a little bit longer. Don't cut the sides down. That's the first thing. The other thing you can do is stick your foot in a basin of warm, salty water while you're watching the telly, while you're watching a programme that's half an hour long. And with your your clean hand, with your, your washed clean hand, use your thumb to continuously kind of push the proud flesh back Push the cuticle back off the nail to sort of ease it back so that there's no debris or infection forming under it and so that it isn't allowed sort of heap up to the extent it wants to. So you're kind of you're kind of easing your cuticles mm. off the sides of your toe. Um, if you're doing that, if you're letting your toenails grow and you still have a problem, then you're probably going to need to have probably either your toenail removed or have a, a little wedge resection of the toenail, which is where you take off a portion of the toenail. Do they still take off toenails? They do, yeah. yeah they have to. They, they evulse them. It's a, it's a kind of an unpleasant procedure, actually. Yeah, painful. Well, we do we do numb you up. Yeah. We do numb you. It's not it's not like some medieval yeah. thing. Just rip it off. We give you a local anaesthetic, but it's still an unpleasant uh, yeah. procedure for people to have. Uh, I have a thing in the back of my head, which you're probably going to tell me is completely wrong. That this is now to this is to nip the problem in the bud before it happens. I suppose sure. if you cut your nail in a certain way, was it cutting a V in your nail? Yes. Is that does that actually work? Yeah, it does actually. Yeah, the people people cut V's into the middle of their nail, and it allows the nail to splay a little bit. And it's that idea of trying to keep the sides long enough I wish sometimes I wish we were on TV you could actually sort of demonstrate it but you want to keep the sides of your nail long enough that the flesh kind of can't grow over the edges and that's very helpful too Okay Um, Another listener by the way you're listening to the Right Hook Right Hook Health Checkup with Dr. Kira Kelly Uh, keep your text coming to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent Um, This listener says I have RA and heart failure I get a pain in my neck going into my head what could it be? Or A is rheumatoid arthritis, Shane. Um, so this is a guy with rheumatoid arthritis, or a woman, I don't know which, rheumatoid arthritis and heart failure. Um, heart failure is truthfully probably unrelated to, to the neck pain unless the heart failure is of such a sort of uh, level that you're sitting around all day because you can't walk or anything, as can happen with very advanced heart failure. Um, and then I suppose you could get lots of aches and pains from sitting. But... Chances are this may be rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is uh, an inflammatory arthritis that affects lots and lots of the joints of the body. Um, you'll often see it in people's hands. People will often have very big knuckles and their fingers may kind of point to one side, sort of twisted and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But it can certainly affect the spine as well. Um, and if it is rheumatoid arthritis of the spine, 
then there are a variety of things that can be done. But I, I suppose the first thing this person needs to do to look into why they're having this is to have an X-ray of their neck, um, a C-spine X-ray. And possibly they may also need uh, an MRI of their neck too because lots of people get neck pain and it may not be the rheumatoid arthritis or the the... the a heart failure because lots of us have uh, spinal pain low back pain or neck pain and don't have either of those conditions okay. um, and people often have disc problems in their neck um, and nerve roots get pinched because of that so this this person needs some scanning done of their neck to see what the cause is I doubt it's heart related um, it may be rheumatoid related but they need to have some investigations done to see what they should do from here Okay good advice um, this listener says uh, Hi Kira. for neck problems I would go to an osteopath what do you think of that? I have no difficult. Okay, I, that's not really true. I have some difficulty with osteopaths. You. I knew you'd have some. Um, you said I have no difficulty. I was like, no. I don't actually. There are some very good osteopaths and I have a couple local to me that I will send patients to because I know them and I know of them and I know what they do to my patients. The difficulty I suppose that I have is, is that the area of, of alternate health is not regulated in this country. So there are people who call themselves osteopaths and chiropractors and various things and we don't really know what their qualifications are. Um, so as I say, th- there are two in particular that I use. There's one in Grayson's and one in Bray that I use in local to me, both of whom I think are excellent and I'd go to them myself if I was stuck. But I, I, I have to put a kind of a, you know, a, a like a, a little codicil uh, here. Kind of going, I don't know, you know, because... The, it, the problem is we don't have, have a great deal of um, uh, regulation in, in allied medical uh, professions in this country. So you have people calling themselves all sorts of things and you don't necessarily know if they've done a proper course. And people can do degrees in osteopathy through very reputable colleges. But equally, people do things online and stuff and start calling themselves various things. And that's that's a concern for me. Um, if this woman is happy with her osteopath and feels that she gets benefit from it, uh, I would suggest that's probably reasonably okay. Maybe run it by your GP. Your GP may in fact know the osteopath and may know whether or not they're a good and reputable uh, source of, of support and care. Um, but it's it's sort of about standards and the difficulty for us is, is that it's unregulated. And so it's kind of hard to say a blanket, oh yes, they're all great. Okay. Um, that's not to say they're all bad. Osteopaths are now going to be texting in furiously to the right book. Yeah, there's some, there's some very good ones out there. Um, John and Johnny Gall, 31, male, getting chest flutters, stroke palpitations. Don't drink coffee or energy drinks. Having them on and off for six to eight weeks, could it be chocolate? Yes and no. Uh, there is a degree uh, of association between chocolate, but you'd want to be eating a fair bang of chocolate to get palpitations from and it. Chest you know I mean? Yeah, you would, you, would, you would want to be doing that. Um, the good news is this, is the majority of people who have chest flutters and palpitations and those types of things, it's not their heart. It usually is alcohol or coffee or a big one is anxiety. Lots and lots of people who suffer with anxiety start to get a bit palpitation-y. Um, but the other things that can cause it too are things like an um, an overactive or an underactive thyroid can affect your, those kinds of things. So you need a blood test, this guy does. He also probably think, needs a thing called a Holter monitor. And a Holter monitor is something that can be arranged through your, your GP. You get referred to the hospital and what they do is they put little stickers on your chest that you wear for 24 hours, um, like an ECG, and they, they, they plot your heart and they actually see if you're having 
true palpitations, true arrhythmias, or if you're if you're not, basically. And most people, it turns out, are not, and that's the good thing. But it does need to be looked into, um, because we we, we can't outrule anything like that, uh, you know, here on the right yeah. hook. But it could be anxiety as well, and I think that's that's worth bearing okay. in the back of our needs, minds. Needs to get it checked and out. a blood test. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I think we've time for two last quick ones, just very quickly, if we can. Uh, John says, my wife is fifty three, suffers with severe hot flushes. Yeah. Any relief? I feel her pain. It's very difficult for women postmenopausally once they get into their 50s. Um, women go through the menopause and hot flushes become a thing. If it is massively a problem, we, we do still consider HRT. HRT has fallen out of favour to a large extent because of difficulties with heart disease and breast cancer and stuff like that. There's an association. Um, having said that, you know, risk and benefits have to be weighed up. And if, if you are debilitated by these horrendous hot flushes, then it's probably reasonable to go on something like HRT, provided you're a suitable candidate. But there are other things you can do. And I would advise you to consider doing things like going to your health food store or your chemist and looking at alternative therapies for uh, um, these types of things. People take sage, people take phytosoya, people take uh, menoherbs, menopace. There's there's various supplements you can take. And women tell me that they help them. So, so that's good. Um, Sometimes they're worse at night. People can't sleep with them. Um, what what I find is is that sometimes you need your own duvet. At a certain point in, in married people's <laughs> lives, sometimes a double duvet is not the way to go. Two single duvets on the bed. It's very Scandinavian. Yeah. Um, and you know a light tog because if you're persecuted, and you can always share the one duvet, you know, if, if you need to. For, you, you, yeah. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Ah, you are like George. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so your own duvet, light, you know, cool drinks. Don't don't dress warmly, even in hot, you know, even in cold weather all that kind of stuff so so sensible pragmatic things but there are definitely supplements you can take that help Okay time for one last very quick one I'm a singer just had a tonsillectomy two weeks ago will my voice be the same? Chances are yes okay that's the good news may even be slightly better because your tonsils are not your vocal cords they're above them and they don't interact with them and your vocal cords are generally what you know, if you have a problem with that affect your voice. Having said that, it may be subtly different because your voice, the timbre of your voice comes from not just your vocal cords, but from the shape of your pharynx, your nasopharynx, your palate and all that kind of stuff. Having the two large kind of balls that are your, your, your tonsils scooped out of the back of your throat um, may in fact improve your voice. It'd be like singing into a vaulted church. Wow. You are a font of knowledge, aren't you? No, not really. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Dr. Kira Kelly, as ever, thanks indeed Thank you, for Shane. popping in. You'll be back with George next week for the Right Hook Health Checkup. Thanks.